Thanks for joining me today. Uh, This is the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra, and this is episode number 34 in season number four. So my guest today is Michael Kappa. He's an entrepreneur and thought leader from Canada. He has his own painting business, and he has a podcast, A Millennial's Journey. Uh, For regular listeners of the Simply Financial Podcast, you may recall a few episodes ago uh, with season four, episode 23, I did an episode with Kevin McGarry, who is doing his PhD thesis on leadership and millennials. So I think my discussion here with uh, Michael is going to tie in nicely with that. So without further ado, that's such a cliche. Michael, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, it's an honor to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Christopher. Everybody calls me Chris. Unless I'm in trouble, it's a universal thing, then it's Christopher. It works with my mom, my wife, in the business world. So do I call you Mike or Michael? Uh, You know what? Either goes. People called me Mike Rona. People called me Michael. My last name is Kappa, so everyone called me by my last name. So Mike or Michael goes either way, Chris. All right. I could see that Kappa being a neat nickname. Yeah, kind of like the Italian clothing brand. There you go. Very good, Mike. So I wanted to ask you first, it's kind of a standard question for me, but to just kind of set the stage, growing up, what kind of home did you grow up in? Would you describe it as a wealthy home, poor home, upper middle class, lower middle class? How would you describe it? Wow, I've actually never been asked this before. So this is a first for me. To be honest, Chris, it it varied between middle class to upper middle class. So uh, when I came around in the mid 90s, at that point, my mom had a really good government job with the Ontario Public Service. And my dad had a really successful marketing firm. He had clients like General Motors, Whirlpool, AC Delco Canada, so, yes, I definitely did have a really great upbringing in the sense that my parents were able to afford my siblings and I being able to play sports and us being able to go to music lessons and, and do things like that. So I will be upfront. I definitely had a really privileged childhood and, and I had a lot of opportunity. But then by the year 2000, my dad actually got really sick. And he he had to retire from his business on uh, disability. And 10 years later, uh, I was 14 in 2010. And I had three older siblings in university. And by that point, we had all played competitive sports. Okay. So with my dad being on disability for several years, and then uh, my mom was done work for uh, uh, several years by that point, too. She actually had to go back to work. That's what I was saying, where my lifestyle varied. We kind of started off upper middle class. And then when my dad got sick and my mom stayed home to take care of us kids, um, it definitely, in retrospect, it was a good experience because it put us through the socioeconomic sure. roller coaster. And, and it definitely taught us the value of hard work because as kids, we had to work hard for some of the things that we wanted to do. And uh, just to kind of cap off my answer here, Chris, I'm really grateful for my parents because they really supported my siblings and I and everything that we did. They never said, you you have to go to school to be a lawyer. You have to go to school to be a doctor. They always encouraged us to do what we love. And my three siblings and I have all been 
really successful in what we do because we are pursuing the things that we love. Beautiful. Well said. So you actually set up my next question. So because you, you kind of moved around, you know, between middle class to upper middle class, and you had some changes along the way driven by, as you described, your dad's um, health events, what are some of your early memories about what you learned about money growing up, especially things that, well, we'll start with things that you still kind of stick by. There's still guidelines that you use today that you picked up at a relatively early age. Can you point to any? I think you're referring to like the concept of money stories. Sure. So one of the money stories that I was familiar with as a kid. Now, like I said, my parents were a little bit more well off before I came around and before my dad became disabled. But uh, when I was growing up, the money story that I was familiar with was, oh, well, we can't always afford it and money doesn't grow on trees. And that hasn't necessarily carried forward with me into my young age now. I think one thing that did carry forward with me that I, I noticed my parents spend a lot of money on growing up was food and entertainment. And that's something we're going to get to in the interview. Yeah. As, uh, you know, we're a musical family. We love to have fun and we love going out and enjoying ourselves. And over the years, I've noticed my parents spend a lot of money on food and entertainment. And that definitely made its way down to me. Now, when I lived on my own in college, I was very uh, stingy with money because, you know, you're a college student. You have to use your resources wisely. But yes, you do. When I started running my own business right out of university, I was making money hand over fist. So it's like, oh, wow, I have more money. I got to spend it (laughs) or I have the ability to spend more now because I'm making more. And that's an economic principle I've had to learn the hard way is just because I have more money doesn't mean I get to spend more money. There you go. And you you would like to build wealth in part by investing in real estate. Is that right? I took that from your bio. Eventually, yeah, that's what I'm working towards. And where were, where does that concept originate from? Were your parents real estate investors? Is it something you learned in university? But your, your aspiration to build wealth in large part through accumulating real estate properties, where does that come from? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. So if you've ever studied the cash flow quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. Robert Kiyosaki, yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's funny I've, you say that. Just, I'm going to interrupt you, which sure. I shouldn't do as a host. But if you'll allow me, I know Rich Dad, Poor Dad is his most popular book by far. But I think Cashflow Quadrant is a much better book and way more impactful than Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Not that Rich Dad, Poor Dad isn't a good book, but my favorite of Kiyosaki is Cashflow Quadrant. No, I'm glad that you did interrupt because that's also one of my favorite books of his too. And to tie that back into what I was going to say, my parents definitely fit in the E and the S quadrants. Okay. So I'd say with my dad's marketing business, he was definitely, if not in the B quadrant, he was, he was approaching it. Like his business, by the time he retired on disability, he was doing like $10 million a year as a company. Mm -hmm. So observing my parents, they kind of hovered between the E and the S a little bit of the B quadrant, I guess, with my dad's business. But being investor savvy was never something that was taught to us as kids, both in the school system and and from my parents. Like my parents never had 
income properties, but they had RRSPs, which are the, sim- the same thing as, uh, I guess, Roth R- IRAs in the U.S. That's right. But my affinity towards real estate investing came from this gentleman named Scott McGivory, and he's on HDTV, and he has a show called Income Property. And he's Canadian, and I, I know he does a lot of stuff in the States as well, but he, he's fairly big in the Canadian construction and real estate scene. And I went to one of his, his free seminars. It was really when I was 20 years old, during my third year at university, that I started taking the initiative to learn financial literacy because I just by nature was an entrepreneur and I loved what I was learning in school, but I also wanted to learn more about money. And I stumbled across the idea of, well, what makes a wealthy person wealthy? And one of those aspects was real estate. And when I saw the ad on Facebook for Scott McGivory's free seminar that he was actually going to be at, I was like, wow, this looks, this looks really cool. So it was a two hour free seminar at a, I think it was a hotel or a convention center. And he just talked about how you can build long-term wealth in real estate. A couple of years later, after I went to the free seminar, a couple of years later, I actually went to the paid seminar and I learned so much about real estate investing. So it started when I was 20 years old and now I'm 23 and I'm, I'm still saving up my down payment and, and learning. But uh, education is the most important thing in real estate, as you know, because you can make uh, pretty big blunders pretty quickly. Yes. As um, I often say, you know, real estate is a good place to accumulate wealth, but it is a very competitive marketplace and there are a lot of sharks out there and you really need to be careful. It's not easy in some ways, but it is wonderful. And, you know, part of my plan to build wealth, Michael, personally for my wife and I and my family includes investing in real estate. I am a big believer in that, not to the exclusion of other things, but as part of an overall wealth building plan. So um, I, I think you are on the right path. Switching gears a little bit, It seems, having done some research on you, because we've never met in person, and having listened to a few episodes of your podcast, you really want to help others and spread value. And you're you're a millennial, right? And you want to help other millennials. That's kind of your target market, if you will. Is that right? So, you know, millennials, it's interesting. I have a few years on you, because I'll be 50 this year, so I am a Gen X individual, but millennials have a couple of different reputations. Some of them are not so good. Others are. And, you know, every older generation likes to pick on the younger generation. I think that's just human nature to a certain extent. But how would you characterize millennials? I know it's broad and we're stereotyping, but can you give some useful guidance in describing millennials in in your generation? Yeah, absolutely. So the first place, before I even tell you my opinion, I would recommend your listeners go check out Simon Sinek. He has done amazing research and is very well-versed on the topic of millennials in the workplace and millennial leadership and such. Uh, That's where I've learned a lot about millennials from. I've learned a lot from Simon Sinek. His main concept is the start with why. He has a bunch of other things. But anyways, my take on millennials you know, people say not to stereotype and people say not to generalize, but there's always a bit of truth to stereotypes and generalizations. So the three or four things that kind of stick out with me to millennials, uh, good or bad, 
you know, facts are just facts. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with the truth. It's just how you emotionally perceive it is number one, millennials get a really bad rap for entitlement because I think a lot of millennial kids had baby boomer parents and sense of entitlement comes from things like job security, having a pension. Uh, there's a lot of things in the, the workforce that came about with the baby boom generation yeah, that, that have been passed down or lack thereof to millennials because some companies still offer really great benefits packages and they actually take care of their workforce for the long term. Some not so much, but that's something that millennials demand is because like the work-life balance, which that's I believe right. doesn't exist, but for some reason, millennials like to believe that it does. Um, you know, that's something that they demand and that's something that they saw their parents get. So you have to understand that there's a root place in history for where these frames of thought come from. So I think a lot of millennials saw their, their Gen X and, and baby boom parents be entitled to a lot of these things that they also want as well. So that's, that's my first kind of take on millennials. My second take on millennials is that because we grew up with technology and particularly video games, particularly highly particularly social media. Sure. Is the fact that we like things instantaneously. Yes. And because we have been socially conditioned, whether you're aware of it or not, over the past however many years of our upbringing from these quick dopamine hits that have come from video games or achieving something uh, in a game and, and likes on social media, we've attributed our self-worth and our self-esteem to false idols or to false things that really, in the grand scheme of things, aren't that important. So what that has produced with a lot of millennials, at least this is my opinion on it, from what I've observed with my friends and just in general, is that there's a massive sense of not knowing thyself with millennials. So okay. there's, a, there's a major lack of clarity with what they want in life. And that leads to things like anxiety and depression, because anxiety comes from not knowing and being uncertain of the future. And depression comes from making poor decisions in the past. So because millennials are so engaged with technology and myself, I definitely hold myself accountable. I, I spend way too much time on social media each day. Sometimes, sometimes I get down on myself. I'm like, man, I spent way too much time on my phone today. I probably should have read a book or I should have walked my dogs or something. <laughs> but it, it's also a positive because, and I had said this to Kevin McGarry, I, I re referenced at the opening about the episode I did with Kevin, is in, in my experience, millennials are fearless. They're fearless because they are confident that if you give them a task, if they have something that they need to do, that they could get it done because they know how to go and get information. They could go on Google. They could use the Internet. They could use social media. They could leverage their network that they could go and figure stuff out. And my generation would have been more on balance. Now, again, we're, we're doing broad strokes, right? But on mm -hmm. balance would be a little bit more cautious because if I didn't know something – it would have taken me a little time to f learn it. Millennials tend to be fearless because, yeah, I can handle that. I could do that. And I see that. I have several employees, um, team members that are millennials, 
and I see that every day. I, I think, uh, well, this is kind of be hard. They haven't gotten exposed to this before, and I'll ask them, can you help with this? They're like, yeah, sure, no problem. And it's a very, very positive trait. Now, you have to be careful as a leader, though, because you want to make sure they don't go too far into the deep end and get themselves into a mess. Uh, it's good to be fearless, but sometimes caution might be required at least a little bit. And, and Michael, I see that even with my son, who's only 14, so he's not a millennial. But, you know, if, if he's onto something that he's curious about, you know, he just goes on YouTube, like, you know, how to do a magic trick. Or, you know, even my wife, we got a, a new car and she couldn't figure something out. He's like, oh, I'll figure it out. He's not handy in the classic sense of handy, but he's fearless. He's like, I'll just go on, I'll Google it and just figure it out and this, that, the other thing. And you know what? He was 100% right. So I think that's a wonderful trait. Do you see that in your generation? Is that a fair assessment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, listen, I didn't mean to only focus on a couple of negative things. No, it, I it's know. such, It's such, like you said, it's such a broad strokes thing. I didn't even get a chance to touch on some of the positives. But yeah, that that's totally one is that, access to information and being technologically savvy is coupled with the fact that millennials have this affinity to create an impact or be part of something that's creating an impact, which is, you know, I part and parcel exemplary of my podcast, which is to help millennials develop a wealthy mindset. Sure. Um, being able to couple that, that trait that millennials have of wanting to make an impact with being technologically savvy and being able to pull that information really quick into an actionable skill or into something that helps you or helps people. That's an amazing thing. Oh, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about um, money dials, which is a concept that's been out there. And uh, I think it's something that you focus on to a certain extent. So for uh, my listeners, can you talk a little bit about what they are just in the basics? Then we could get into a little bit of how you've adopted them for your own use and how you use them to maybe help others. Yeah, absolutely. So Chris, I'm a big believer of giving credit where it's due. That's the academic in me. Yeah. So this is definitely a concept that comes from Ramit Sethi. And he states it as where do you like to spend your money and be okay with it? However, I'm going to take it a little bit of a step further and say, how can you use your money dial in favor or have it be mutually beneficial for not just yourself, but for others? So let me tell you what my money dials are, and this will become more apparent with your audience. So for me, Chris, I love trying new foods and I love going to concerts because what are the two things that all people have in common disregarding race, religion, culture, gender, and socioeconomic status? Food and entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> so where do most business deals happen at, at the hockey game or at some sports event or wherever, right? Yes. So because forging strong relationships is one of my core values, starting a conversation with someone with talking about food that traditionally comes from their culture or their nationality or, or talking about a shared music interest is an amazing way to create a bond with someone. And I also want to pursue a career in music for the coming years. So I'm definitely more inclined to buy gear for my drum set and spend money in the area of music as I see it as an investment for future returns. No, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, I'm, as a financial planner, I've spoken now with um, individuals and families and business owners for over 28 years. And 
sometimes people could be a little judgmental because, for example, I'm not musically inclined at all, right? I, I mean, I could barely play the radio. So I'm not your... I'm not your peeps when it comes to this stuff. And sometimes people like me say, could say, well, why are you wasting your money on that? Like, it's just drums. You know, whatever drum set you have, is this that you good? But then my wife and I might go out and spend a lot of money on dinner and a bottle of wine, and someone else might judge us and say, well, why do you spend all that money at food? You can make that at home, and you can buy that bottle of wine at a much less expensive price points, but we all have areas where we get tremendous satisfaction of spending money. Some of that might be to increase our IQ, it might be to advance our cause, it might be to improve our business, but we spend money and we, we all get to make some decisions as to where we kind of, I'm going to say splurge, but where we get satisfaction of spending money on. The trick is, as a financial planner, is the trick is you can't do that in all areas or too many areas, otherwise you'll get swamped. And some people fall into that trap and that's where they end up with excessive debt and an inability to create wealth because there, there's simply no guardrails up anywhere and that could become a problem. So I love what you're talking about in terms of money dials. And I'm a foodie, so my example with my wife and I is spot on. I mean, there is a lot of areas where I am very disciplined with spending and money. And I wouldn't say I'm a cheapskate, but th there are areas where I'm very disciplined. Then there are others where I am not. Um, my wife and I like food. Um, we like um, wine, and we do go out, and we spend money there. And to some people, that would not fit into their money dial, and that's okay. Uh, but I also don't drive a car that is nice as some pe other people that I know, because that's not really high on my list. Do you think your money dials change over time? I mean, you and I have a pretty good age gap. Have you thought about how your money dial changes over time as your life unfolds? Uh, people get married, they have children, they might own a business, they might have a mortgage, they might have a health issue. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So just speaking from personal experience, and it's interesting to hear that you and I have very similar money dials. I would say that I'm, I definitely have an affinity to spend more money on my body than I used to. So now because I'm not 17 years old and oh, I don't it's have only a, gonna, It's only going to get worse. I know. <laughs> you brought that up. Go ahead. <laughs> it's so funny when I bring it up because older people are like, what? What is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> No, it's funny, man. I'm, uh, I'll be 24 next month and I can already feel a difference between my body now and when I was 17 because uh, I used to do really high intensive interval training and I used to do really intensive boxing training. So I used to be really cut and uh, in really good shape. But now like my joints from because I'm a painter for a living now and I also play the yeah. drums. So my joints like my lower back, my elbows, my shoulders, like nothing is the same. And now I have an affinity or I guess I have a money dial towards taking care of my body. So I take a lot more supplements like vitamin C and chondroitin and uh, I have a proceeding forehead. So I've bought more like uh, anti-hair fall shampoo to try and salvage my hair before it's too late. Uh, <laughs> And I actually got tend I got really bad tendonitis and joint damage in my right arm 
last summer from painting and drumming. And over the past year, I've spent uh, very, very lucky to have my business, but I also worked really hard at building it. So I'm lucky to have my business that I was able to afford paying for the physiotherapy treatments because fixing my arm it's it's still not 100%. It's probably going to be another few months before it's 100%. But I've had this injury now for like seven months. And it's taken me hundreds of hours of heating, icing, exercising, wow. and and thousands of dollars, like I'm not exaggerating, to go to the physio treatment and, and get this thing back into working order. So yeah, my money dial of taking care of my body has definitely increase now that I'm older and I know it sounds funny because this is coming from a 24 year old but yeah my money dial for taking care and and it makes a lot of sense especially given the physical demands of your career and your uh, music I don't know if you consider it a hobby I don't want to minimize it but I mean that's that's physically rigorous stuff so that that does that definitely makes sense you want to help Millennials you have the podcast uh, in your bio, in the bio, you had terms about um, helping create opportunities for others and creating and spending, you know, spreading value. So when when your listeners, when your fans, people that you come across, when they think about you and your show and your and, and what your mission is, how do you want them to to think about you and what do you want them to to get from their interactions with you? Wow. Is that a big question? It is. Yeah. No, I've I've started doing some more introspection with this because we want to grow the show. So it's like I need to think about how the audience is going to relate to me. (sighs) To be honest, I just want to I want to make sure that people perceive me as relatable and as a role model. No, because I lay it out pretty cut and dry. Here's the truth. And I just hope that my listeners are willing to receive the advice that I have from my personal experience and the, the lessons that we learn from the guests that we bring on the show. I, I really hope that my listeners view me as someone that is pursuing their passions and is on track to uh, build a wealthy life and be a role model for others. To be honest, if this music career takes off, it's it's in the incubation stage right now. But if it does take off, then uh, my fans could view me as a serial entrepreneur that also rocks out. Then that'd be great. <laughs> That's good. I like that. That's catchy. Now, you mentioned um, Simon Sinek. Did you see that he has a new book coming out? If it's not a hell yeah, it's a no, um, which is a, an expression that I've actually adopted from him because you know, at least for me at this point, you know, there's a lot of demands on my time, like there is for lots of people. And I'm inclined to say yes. Most people have at least some of their personalities is you want to please people. You want to be liked. So somebody asks for something and you say yes. You're inclined to say yes. At least I am as a default. But then you run into a situation where you end up with too much on your plate. And that, that's problematic for a whole host of reasons. And what he says is if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. And I've kind of adopted that both professionally as well as personally. You know, if there's something that's like, ah, you know, you're invited to do something, you're kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if it's not enthusiastic, yes, hell yeah, I'm going to say no. And it served me really well. 
I don't know much about the book. It may not even have come out yet, but uh, it sounds like you're a Simon Sinek fan, so I'm sure you'll check that out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I haven't read it yet, so, I, so I'm in the same camp as you. I don't know if it's out, but I, I'm of the same viewpoint. That's one thing that this COVID experience has opened my eyes to is I did say yes to so many things, and I am I have uh, too many kettles on the stove. There you go. Well. Very good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate the discussion. And listeners that might want to find out more information about you and your show, where would you direct them to? Yes. Yeah, so my show is called A Millennial's Journey. Now, I know people spell millennial wrong all the time. I used to. So yes, it's because there's the two N's, right? Yeah, two N's and two L's. So A Millennial's Journey is the name of the podcast, and our Instagram is Millennial Journey Podcast. Beautiful. Well, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. Love the discussion. And hopefully uh, all of these different uh, kettles on the stove, they work out tremendously well for you. Uh, Listeners, if you want more information about uh, my business, Elliott Wealth Management Services, go to our website, www.elliottwealth.com. Uh, we would like to help you win with money and increase your financial IQ. The purpose of the Simply Financial podcast is exactly that, to help you increase your financial IQ. So please subscribe, and I'll be back with you on the next episode of the Simply Financial podcast very soon. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.